if I told you that one of the most prolific artists of the 20th century doesn't appear in the art history books? What if there was a creative genius right outside of our view who was on par with beloved figures like Leonardo da Vinci, Salvador Dali, and Frida Kahlo, yet teachers of art don't say her name in the art history classes? You might say, well, maybe this artist didn't have a very long career. To which I would say, her career spans an impressive 67 years. You could then propose, well, maybe this artist wasn't in the public eye enough to leave her mark. Sure, good point. But I offer you this. No, she made countless artworks, which were featured in over 350 gallery exhibitions during her lifetime. Yeah, over 350. I counted. Add to this, she completed over 1,100 paintings. I imagine finally you might throw your arms up in frustration and say, I know, she must have not been very good. Her contemporaries and her art critics must have not seen her as very significant. You know, the old quantity over quality argument. Now, that's a good point. But here's the thing. To many of the artists of her time, she was a living icon, an enigma, a rival. Photographers loved her. She is claimed to be one of the most photographed people of the 20th century. Writers wrote prosaic declarations of affection about her and her art. She collaborated with the very best cultural minds of her day, and her paintings were exhibited in every major center of art and culture in the world. Yet, she is virtually unknown to us today. Her name is Leonor Fini. What happened? Why are there no Leonor Fini museums? Why is her name omitted from the textbooks? Why is she not included among the who's who of 20th century art, among her peers, omitted from the official list of French surrealist artists who were actually her contemporaries? Why? I've been studying her life these last few months, and I keep finding myself asking these questions. Over and over, Leonor Fini is a creative genius on par with figures like Salvador Dali and Frida Kahlo. In fact, she was friends with both of them. So what is it about her or her work that made her pushed aside by traditional art history? Is it something in her art? Was it something in her personality? Is it because she was an outspoken woman in what was a largely male-dominated art industry? Was her artwork too dark or too erotic? Is it because her view of sexuality, gender, and a woman's role in society was a century ahead of its time? Is it all of the above? It's time we found out, and it's time we get used to saying her name. Leonor Fini. Welcome to Creative Codex. I am your host, MJ Dorian. This is Codex 30, Leonor Fini, Mirrors of the Dark Sublime. Let's begin. Chapter 1. A Sphinx is Born Leonor Finney's earliest memory 
is being kidnapped as a child. The man was hired by her father, Erminio Fini. The plan was to abduct little Leonor from her mother in Italy by force and bring her back all the way to Argentina. In the book, Interview with the Muse, by the author Nina Winter, Finney recounts this traumatic event. I remember it well. I was walking down the street in the perfectly normal vertical position of a child moving, and suddenly I was taken in someone's arms and found myself in a horizontal position. This frightened me very much, and the fear stayed with me for many years after. As a child, I felt constantly in the shadow of some dark, obscure menace. Unquote. Thankfully, this criminal plan was foiled by neighbors on the street, who saw the dramatic scene and stopped the man. But the effects of this traumatic event sent ripples through little Leonore's childhood and well into her adult life. That phrase, the shadow of some dark, obscure menace, would later become a defining feature of her artwork. Leonor Finney was born in Buenos Aires, Argentina, on August 30th, 1907. Her parents, Malvinia and Herminio, aged 18 and 35, gave her the name Eleonora Finney. They were a newly married couple, with hopes of raising a family in a large house near the Carapachai River, a house which Herminio, a wealthy businessman, had purchased for them. Oddly enough, neither of them were of South American descent, so their decision to move from northern Italy, where Malvinia had all of her family, to Argentina was likely due to Erminio's business, or a darker motive, to isolate her from her family. We'll get to that soon. It's in Finney's birthplace that we find the first misconception often mentioned about her. Some article writers in the 1900s call her Argentinian, because that was where she was born. But in reality, she was European. Her mother was from Sarajevo, and her father was of German, Slavic, and Venetian descent. We don't know much about Erminio and Malvinio's relationship, but it's clear something was desperately wrong. Within 18 months of little Leonor's birth, Malvinia fled South America with her daughter and returned to Italy. For a woman in 1908, who was a new mother and was married to a wealthy businessman, to choose to flee is unheard of. Passenger planes were not even invented until 1914, so Malvinia and her 18-month-old daughter had to travel by steamship over 7,000 miles back to Italy, a trip that would have taken several days. Fini describes her father as a tyrannical figure, and we can assume that he must have been emotionally and possibly physically abusive to Malvinia. Again, for a woman who was a new mother in the early 1900s, to separate from her wealthy husband was no trivial matter. In the years that followed their escape from him, Erminio could not reconcile himself with losing a daughter, and he tried everything in his power, including filing court orders and trying to get legal custody over little Leonor. It was around this time that he hired someone to kidnap her. Fortunately, that plot was foiled. Afterward, Malvinia and Leonor fled south and relocated again in Trieste, Italy. To protect her daughter, Malvinia dressed her as a boy and kept her hair cut short to make it harder for any of Erminio's associates of finding them again. There is a studio photograph that was taken of little Leonor around this time when she was eight years old that shows her dressed in a boy's sailor suit. Finney recalls this time, saying, 
It was a childhood full of adventure, like the films of the period, for I was disguised as a little boy whenever we traveled anywhere." Unquote. Fortunately for Finney, this shadow of some dark obscure menace, which was precipitated by her father, was balanced out by an incredibly rich and imaginative childhood. She grew up in Trieste, Italy, which is a beautiful and bustling port city in northern Italy. During Finney's childhood, Trieste was a major center for art, culture, and fashion. The facades of every building had ornate architecture, Art Nouveau ornaments, and decorative sculptures of nude women that towered over the sidewalks. Its predominantly middle-class citizens made it an intellectually sophisticated city. It was home to many noteworthy artists and writers. The Irish novelist James Joyce even lived in Trieste from 1904 to 1920 and wrote portions of his famous book Ulysses while living there. The author Peter Webb spoke with Leonor Finney about her life and writes about it in his biography of her called Sphinx, The Art and Life of Leonor Finney. He states, In Trieste, Leonor lived at number four, Via Rossini, a large house in the Venetian style on the Riva Carducci, near the harbor crowded with fishing boats with big, colorful sails. One of her first memories was of the wonderful smell of the fish from the fish market. In the house lived her grandparents, her mother, her uncle, a governess, and a servant, not to mention her grandmother's big white Angora cat named Chiochi. This was the first cat Leonor had ever seen. She fell in love with it, and it was her friend and confidant for the next 10 years. Leonor remained devoted to cats ever after. She loved to dress up, and perfect opportunities were provided by the annual Shrove Tuesday Carnival celebrations with their lively parades and masked pageants. Many years later, she recalled the importance of these early experiences, saying, while still a child, I discovered the attraction of masks and costumes. At 14, I walked through the streets of Trieste with a girl of my age, with foxtails stolen from our mothers, sewn to our skirts. To dress up is to have the feeling of changing dimension, species, space. You can feel like a giant, plunge into the undergrowth, become an animal, until you feel invulnerable and timeless, taking part in forgotten rituals." Unquote. As life-affirming as these experiences were, there was always that dark, obscure menace under the surface. Little Leonor was acutely aware of her phantom father, who would still attempt to write and convince her to join him in Argentina. In one such letter, he includes a picture of a yacht, which he promises is hers, and which has her name painted on the side, Leonor. A close friend once remarked, on the early childhood of Leonor lay the shadow of that absent father, Don Juan Boogeyman, deceitful virility with mustache, sombrero, and cigar, who, outraged in his honor, wants to regain his daughter from a gentle maternal clan, liberal and free-thinking, so as to bring her up according to the laws of the apostolic Roman Catholic religion." Unquote. All of these formative experiences would inform the artwork she would make for the rest of her life. At times her paintings may seem dark and strange, as we will see, but when one knows her life story, it becomes clear they are highly symbolic and filled with personal meaning. An old friend from Trieste, who knew Finney from school, 
told Peter Webb about how she remembers her. She used to love dressing as a boy. She often refused to go to school and was really self-taught. She was very rebellious and behaved terribly to people she didn't like. She really enjoyed hating people and playing tricks on them. I remember how beautiful she was with her large black eyes, like velvet, resembling those of a cat." Unquote. Side note, if you'd like to see Leonor Finney's artwork and the many famous photographs of her, I've put together a special companion gallery for this episode. Simply head over to mjdorian.com forward slash Finney. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N dot com forward slash F-I-N-I. The link is also in the episode description. For Finney, these early childhood fascinations would turn into lifelong character traits. Her attraction to masks and costumes developed into a love for masquerades, which she would go out of her way to both host and attend throughout her life. In the 1940s and 50s, Masquerade balls were a fixture of Parisian society. The wealthy and influential would invite artists and celebrities to their opulent mansions with the added stipulation that everyone was to come in costume. No exceptions. Finney would design herself new costumes, masks, and creatures, which she could transform into for these masquerades. So much so that people would hush when she entered the room, as if they were witnessing some undiscovered animal wandering amongst them. She had this penchant for being an exhibitionist, like her contemporary, Salvador Dali. But in Fini, it was less about shock and absurdist humor, and more about theatricality and symbolism. Photographers loved taking her picture, and she would even appear on magazine covers wearing her inspired designs. The December 1948 cover of the magazine, This Week, shows Leonor Fini in her intricate owl mask and costume, looking over her shoulder posing with a flower. Many of the most famous photographs of Fini depict her in one of the costumes she designed, often with impressive arrangements of feathers or fur, transforming her into birds, felines, and other human-animal hybrids. She once said in an interview, With costumes and masks, I feel I become an extension of myself. I really enjoy it. And that is why I used to go to the masquerade balls, Sometimes my costumes were so extravagant that people stood aside to let me pass. I rather enjoyed that. No one else really knew how to dress up. I think I had quite an influence on the rich crowd associated with those balls, but I never wanted to dance with anyone. That seemed stupid. When anyone asked me to dance, I would think, poor fool. Unquote. Friends recalled that at times, Finney would arrive at these masquerades and cause a commotion with her incredible costume, but be more interested in observing herself in the mirrors than socializing with the hosts or the guests. Shortly after admiring her new creation and having made her intended impression on the party, she would collect her friends and disappear into the night. Finney enjoyed these kind of masquerade balls so much that she would sometimes host her own parties, the most notorious of which were private and invitation-only parties at an abandoned monastery on an Italian island. The guests had to take a rowboat to get there. In the 1950s, Finney would host these parties at the end of every summer to celebrate her birthday. The scene was something out of a novel, and she would include it as a setting in one of her own novellas called Rogomelek. Yes, she was also an author. We'll cover that by the next episode. 
People who met her would say she had this mystique about her, an otherworldly quality, which often made its way into all of her art. You can see it starting in her paintings of the 1930s, works like Self-Portrait with Scorpion, From One Day to Another, The Black Room, and many more. We'll get to that soon, but we should first get a fuller picture of her initial experiences with art. When does her interest begin? When are the first signs of something exceptional, the first hints of genius? Like most children, Finney begins drawing around the age of four. But with little Finney, it becomes clear that art is one of her favorite subjects, and it remains so throughout her schooling. Over the years, she draws and paints everything around her, from snails and flowers in the garden to family portraits and self-portraits. Looking at her artwork from her childhood, you can tell she has a keen eye for clothing. Some of her illustrations from 1918, when she is 11, show her drawing groups of girls. One drawing shows six classmates and a teacher, but each one of the girls has a distinct outfit, one with a layered skirt, another with bows on her shoes, one with two bows in her hair, another with only one large bow, two with socks instead of stockings, etc. Each one of the girls is the same height, but each of them is distinct. It's clear her young mind is seeing these details about people and deciding they are important. But objectively speaking, these illustrations are not much different from what you would expect kids her age to do, stylistically. She isn't painting Caravaggio's or anything like that. Which makes what happens next all the more peculiar. The book, Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney, states. In 1923, when she was 16, Leonor was taken on a trip to Optichina, up in the hills outside Trieste. In the amusement park, she went for a ride on the Ferris wheel, but she found the experience uncomfortable. The next morning, she found that her eyes were burning and very painful. Rheumatic conjunctivitis was diagnosed, and her eyes had to be bandaged for two and a half months." Unquote. At this point, at the age of 16, this trauma must have put life in perspective for Finney. Now, effectively living without her eyesight for two and a half months, she had a great deal of time to think. The illness put her studies in jeopardy. Up to that point, her family had insisted that she study law at Trieste University and pursue law as a career the way her uncle had done. But Finney felt a strong aversion to this career path, and to her family's disbelief, she stays resolute through her illness, telling them that when she finally takes the bandages off, she wants to dedicate her life to being an artist. Two and a half months later, once the bandages come off, the world undoubtedly looks new and exciting for Leonor. The roses must be redder, the sky must be bluer, and the faces of strangers even more interesting than ever before. Finney told this to Nina Winter in the book Interview with the Muse. When I recovered my eyesight, I started to draw more than ever, as if to make up for lost time. I made marionettes and sculptures and paintings. At one point, my mother gave in and said, after all, she does have a talent in this direction. So there was no more talk of my going to school." Unquote. Leonor has a newfound conviction. She sets the trajectory of her life toward becoming a great artist. Chapter 2. Walking Alone. In the years that followed, Finney studied everything about art and painting which she could get her hands on. In this sense, she was largely self-taught, 
aside from a few figure drawing classes at a local art studio. She didn't belong to any specific art university, and she wasn't in the immediate vicinity of an art movement which she could join. Not yet. In addition, no one in her immediate family shared this passion for art the way she did. Though her family tried to remain helpful and supportive, often the first models for her oil paintings were her family members, cousins, aunts, and friends. Some, like her uncle, even paid her for their portraits. When traveling with her mother, she would make note of the local museums, and Finney would spend hours at a time devouring the details of every painting she could. In the Rivotella Museum of her local Trieste, she saw paintings by Gustav Klimt, von Stuck, and Scheele. One famous painting by von Stuck, titled Sin, especially intrigued her. It depicts a nude woman with her face in shadow, with pale glowing skin, and with an enormous snake wrapping around her body. The woman's expression is one of allure and empowerment. The young artist was taking mental notes for what she liked and didn't, all of which would influence her paintings even decades later. From her first forays into painting, Finney is drawn to the strange, the surreal, the darkly sublime. On her trips to Rome, Turin, Florence, and Venice, she adores studying the works of the Italian Renaissance, and particularly the Mannerist movement, in which artists deliberately distorted the proportions of the human form, elongating necks and limbs of religious figures for expressive effect. One of the greatest influences on young Finney's development as an artist is a man named Arturo Nathan. The book Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney describes their relationship. The most important single influence on Leonor's intellectual and artistic development was Arturo Nathan. He was 40 years old, but became friendly with Leonor through his 14-year-old sister, who was in her class at school. He often invited Leonor and her mother to dinner, where she would eat very fast in order to have time to talk to him afterward. Nathan became very fond of Leonor and gave her lessons in painting. He also had a good collection of art books and introduced her to the German romantics Friedrich and Runge, as well as making her more aware of 20th century artists such as Scheele, de Chirico, and the New Objectivity Movement. He gave her Against Nature by Heismans and Nietzsche's The Gay Science. Nietzsche became Leonor's favorite writer, and she noted especially his declaration that marriage and family were incompatible with a life of great creativity. Nathan was unmarried, and Leonor thought he had an androgynous beauty that suggested he was neither male nor female. He therefore became, in her eyes, the ideal artist. She described him as beautiful, elegant, cultured, very intelligent, sensitive. I thought of him as chaste. Later I learned that he was homosexual. I liked the fact that he didn't try to be male all the time. He was different from any other man I had met." Unquote. There is a painting of Arturo Nathan that no doubt influenced Finney. It is simply titled Self-Portrait. He painted it in 1926. This was created around the time that Finney was close with Nathan. It is a self-portrait in Nathan's trademark metaphysical style, showing him with his arms crossed, hands stretched open on his shoulders, wearing a priest's robe that frames his head, which is then framed a second time by an archway behind him. The color palette is extremely limited, only white and brown earth tones. It's a beautiful and striking portrait. The religious outfit and his calm but penetrating gaze seem to suggest a sublimation of the self, an invaluable lesson for Fini, that an artist 
could make meaningful work with the self as subject. When admiring Feeney's paintings, we see the most recurring figure is in fact herself. At times, as in Self-Portrait with Scorpion, it is without embellishment. And at other times, such as in Sphinx Amalburga, she appears as a mythical sphinx. Even after Finney moved to Paris in the 30s, she continued to keep in close contact with Nathan. Many letters were exchanged between them, until 1944, when, during World War II, Arturo Nathan was sent to a Nazi concentration camp in southern Germany, where he tragically died on November 25, 1944. There's this striking photograph of Finney and Nathan taken in Trieste in 1935, that shows them at a dinner table in a garden. You can take a look at that photograph on the companion gallery I've created for this episode at www.mjdorian.com forward slash Fini, F-I-N-I. In the photograph, they are both intently turning toward the photographer. Nathan is on the left and he appears comfortable, looking at the camera with eyes half squinting from the sunlight. Finney, on the other hand, looks powerful. She's the only person in the photo who is clearly posing. Her right arm is extended across the table. Her left hand is deliberately resting in her coat pocket. Her eyes are peering into some unknown distance or figment of her imagination. She is sitting upright, poised, wearing a man's suit jacket with a collared shirt. Her night black hair is cut short with a single large curl dramatically blowing across her forehead. She is 28 years old in this picture. We are no longer seeing an inexperienced youth taking her enthusiastic first steps into art. We are seeing an artist in command of her fate. This intense gaze she has, which seems so out of place with the pleasant domestic setting that surrounds her, gives me the impression that she's already embracing life as art itself. Every photograph is an opportunity to become something or someone. And she is applying this lesson that her presence, her image, doesn't only convey womanhood, it can convey power. Finney's first oil paintings occur in the late 1920s. These include the paintings titled Confusion, painted in 1926, Old Woman with Clasped Hands, from 1927, and The Temptation, from 1929. Each of these paintings comfortably fits in the surrealist style which modern art in Europe was beginning to transform into. These three paintings, across three years of time, show Finney's blossoming talents on full display. From the unsettling dreamlike scenario of confusion, to the photorealistic hands of old woman with clasped hands, to the strange atmosphere of the temptation, in which a seemingly dazed young woman is reaching for pastries with her right hand, which are presented to her on a platter being held by a ghostly white hand. And there is a dark purple curtain behind her, which separates her from the ominous black clouds of nightfall over a sculpture garden. It reminds me of that phrase Finney associated with her childhood, the shadow of some dark obscure menace. It's a theme we will see time and again in her artwork, even as her aesthetic style transforms over the next two decades. It's around the time of these initial paintings that Finney also begins to test the waters with meeting fellow artists. Arturo Nathan introduces her to the Novocento Italiano group, who work in what is known as a late metaphysical style, similar to his work. Finney gets along well with the group of fellow artists, including a close friendship 
with Giorgio de Chirico, who was already a well-established painter and whose 1914 painting, The Song of Love, is considered a work of early surrealism, even before the movement was officially founded by André Breton in Paris in 1924. But even among artists, there was tension. Fini immediately disliked Carlo Cara, who told her that women could not be good artists because they were too interested in painting their fingernails. Unfortunately, these kinds of dismissals of Fini based on her sex were to be an all-too-common problem during her career. Her response to these kinds of superficial challenges was often outrage or anger, which sometimes worked to her favor, as was the case with a controversial incident at her first group exhibition. In 1929, the Italian artist group Novocento Italiano, which Arturo Nathan had introduced her to, was impressed enough by Fini that they invited her to exhibit her art alongside them. The author, Peter Webb, paints the scene for us. Leonor was very flattered when these famous artists invited her to exhibit with them at the second Mostra del Novocento Italiano at the Palazzo della Permanente in 1929. Given her lack of experience and very limited oeuvre, this invitation seemed surprising. Was it perhaps because of her beautiful appearance and sparkling personality, which would so soon captivate the avant-garde of Paris? She offered them her portrait of the beggar woman, old woman with clasped hands, from 1926, which they accepted. At the opening, however, there was trouble. Signora Margarita Sarfati, Mussolini's mistress and a powerful figure in the Milanese art circles, declared that she had not been consulted about Leonor's inclusion in the show and demanded that the painting be removed. Leonor created a sensation by flinging her coat to the floor of the gallery and screaming abuse at Signora Sarfati. She then consulted a lawyer, who intervened and successfully restored the painting to the exhibition. Leonor was giving notice that she was not a woman to suffer fools gladly. Unquote. At this point in her life, Finney was still many years away from making a living from her personal artwork. But early on, she understands the power of portraiture and their ability to garner patronage from the wealthy and affluent members of society. In the late 1920s, you can see this divide forming between her personal art and her commissioned art. You can see her deliberately training for this type of professional career in these early portraits, like the one of her mother, Mavinia Finney, done in 1925, or a second one done in 1929 where she is sitting with one of her beloved cats. Both portraits show Finney depicting reality at her most reserved, without a hint of darkness or mystery. Finney is practicing her craft of portraiture, likely to have finished works on hand that can demonstrate her abilities to new patrons. She is following a destiny to become a great artist, and like the artists of the Renaissance whom she idolizes, she is seeking the patronage of the wealthy and the affluent to support that journey. Since the Renaissance, this has been a painful reality for artists. You make friends with royalty and nobility because they have expendable income. They hear you're an artist, they are vain, like everyone, and they're willing to pay a high price for a portrait. For the time being, she is willing to sacrifice some of her artistic vision for the sake of making a living. But as she becomes more established, that will change. And eventually, she will refuse to compromise her artistic vision, even for patrons. In the fall of 1931, at the age of 24, 
Leonor Finney takes the next bold steps to follow her ambitions and moves to Paris, France. It is a fortuitous decision. Within the first year there, she meets fellow artists and intellectuals who will become lifelong friends, including the photographer, Henri Cartier-Bresson, who will take countless photographs of Finney throughout her life, and the French writer, André-Pierre de Mandiargues. In 1932, she meets a young Christian Dior. Before he becomes a world-famous fashion designer, he is the director of an art gallery in Paris. Dior is so impressed with Finney's paintings that he offers her her first solo show. It runs from November to December 1932 at the Galerie Bongin. This is a tremendous turn of good fortune for Fini, to have been in Paris only a year as an unknown artist and already be doing a solo show. That's incredible. The gallery is small, but it must provide her with a tremendous sense of validation. The show earns her the attention of local art critics. The art historian Jean Cassou writes this in the invitation to the exhibit. Leonor Finney evokes a whole world of enigmatic and comical creatures who, like those famous others, do not seem to be able to believe their luck. They are dressed in frills and furbelows and crowned with flowers and birds. They feed on old-fashioned cakes and form a passing comedy, a circus of fantasy, disguise, and death. One can leave it to others to say whether this graceful painting is Italian and to what tradition it belongs, it satisfies us because it makes us dream. It produces that delicious moment when the spirit abandons the everyday and invents its own games with their own rules." Unquote. There are hundreds of reviews like this throughout Finney's 67-year career, documenting her importance in 20th century art history. This may be her first solo show, but it will be followed by over 350 exhibitions which show her art to the world during her lifetime. About half of those will be solo exhibitions, the other half, group shows. Through Christian Dior, Finney is then introduced to the fellow haute couture designer, Elsa Schiaparelli. They become quick friends, and Finney even paints a portrait of Schiaparelli's daughter. The author, Peter Webb, tracks down some of their history for us in his book, Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney. He writes, Leonor's friendship with Elsa Schiaparelli gave her an entree into the world of fashion and design. During the late 1930s, she illustrates many creations by Schiaparelli, as well as by Balenciaga and other designers for Vogue and Harper's Bazaar in these full-page watercolor drawings of women accompanied by hybrid animals that have some of the mysterious qualities of her sorcerer's paintings of 1935 to 36. In this, she was following the examples of Man Ray, De Chirico, Dali, and Cocteau, all of whom drew or photographed for this and other magazines. Leonor had no qualms about commercial work, unlike some of the old guard surrealists. And in any case, she needed to make a living, as she was not prepared to continue to depend on the generosity of her family back in Trieste. And the occasional sale of a painting was not sufficient to finance her style of life. Schiaparelli launches her shocking perfume in 1938, based on a blend of bergamot, narcissus, hyacinth, and jasmine, and invites Leonor to design a special bottle. Leonor's brainwave is to copy the shape of a mannequin torso, like those on a stand as used by seamstresses, and resembling Mae West's hourglass figure. It is a great success in its bright pink box, in spite of the little colored glass flowers that were added later, to her great annoyance. 
by orders of the commercial director who considered the design ugly. Proof of the lasting popularity of her design came almost 60 years later in 1993, when Jean-Paul Gaultier introduced a new perfume in a very similar bottle. Unquote. Finney turns into a sought-after party guest, both for her eccentricity and for the fact that she is one of the only female artists exhibiting in Paris at the time. It's at a garden party held by one of her fashion designer friends that she meets fellow painter Max Ernst. The two develop a quick infatuation with one another and soon become lovers. It is through Ernst that Finney is introduced to the official group of the Paris Surrealist movement, where she meets René Magritte, Salvador Dali, and Miro. The author, Peter Webb, describes one of these meetings. Ernst took Leonore to the Café de la Place Blanche, where André Breton held court, surrounded by his Surrealist disciples. Here she met the poet Paul Elouard and his Russian wife, Gala, who later married Salvador Dali. Breton was impressed, as she recalled later. I remember my first visit to André Breton with Cartier-Bresson, who found my drawings strange. They were not rational. They were automatic drawings, bizarre little drawings of animals and humans together in which I tried to assimilate surrealist methods. Ernst and Elouard were enthusiastic, and Breton was at first excited and amused, but he said to me, for heaven's sake, don't draw on squared paper, because I drew on whatever I had on hand, and he did not find that acceptable. However, the Pope of Surrealism showed more appreciation when she arrived at the cafe one day, wearing pink silk cardinal stockings, which she had bought in a religious vestment shop in the Piazza Almenerva in Rome. For Breton, this was evidence of a laudable combination of anti-clericalism and transvestism, although Leonore had worn them merely because she loved the color." Unquote. Although Leonore Finney was clearly as promising a talent as the men in the group, André Breton never made her feel welcome. The author continues, Unlike Elouard and Max Ernst, Breton did not take her very seriously as an artist. All he could find to say about her paintings was très habile, or very clever. And in fact, he was notoriously unable or unwilling to appreciate the talents of women associated with his group. He was also unimpressed with her failure to become a regular disciple at his cafe meetings. For her part, although she enjoyed all the attention, Leonore preferred to guard her independence. Unquote. It was also around this time, in 1939, that Frida Kahlo visits Finney at her art studio in the Rue Payenne. She arrives in her traditional Mexican dress and even brings some of her own self-portraits. This is a meeting for the history books. If I had a time machine, I'd lock this into the itinerary as one of the scenes to witness. Finney also shows Kahlo her work, and they speak of art and the Surrealist movement, including their mutual dislike of André Breton and his rigid theorizing, about which Frida is noted as saying, Todo esto es caca. <laughs> it's all crap. Finney and Kahlo got along well. If only they lived closer to one another, I imagine the relationship could have been even more significant. Kahlo returns to the States, and then Mexico shortly thereafter. It is the only time that they meet, but it is further validation for the notoriety that Leonor Finney has in Paris and Italy at this time. That a fellow artist in Frida Kahlo, who likely felt a similar sense of marginalization in the art world, respected her and took the time to visit with her. 
There are two paintings which I believe signal the end and the culmination of Fini's surrealist period. They are From One Day to Another One and From One Day to Another Two, both painted in 1938. You can view both of them in the companion gallery I've put together for this episode on my site at mjdorian.com forward slash Fini. A link is also in the episode details. Finney's piece, titled From One Day to Another, is a diptych. A diptych is a special kind of artwork that requires the viewer to observe two consecutive paintings to experience the full meaning of the artwork. Finney has simply numbered them one and two. The paintings share the same setting, an elegant Romanesque terrace made of stone with a strong visual presence that includes numerous tall columns stretching upward, joining together with archways. In both paintings, three steps near the center of the scene descend to a shallow pool of water, which is closest to the viewer. The overall impression of the environment is one of classical elegance. But where the two paintings differ is in what else is happening or not happening in them. In the first one, the stone terrace is empty of all people or animals. We see the pure play of shadow and light. As it appears, the sun is the source of light coming from the upper left corner located just behind us, out of view. The pool of water closest to us, which the three steps in the center and those which flank the sides descend into, seems almost entirely drained. Only some connected puddles remain, with various debris strewn about the water. We see feathers, fabric, eggshells, and what appear to be fish bones. It is unclear what could have happened here. Then we look to the second painting of this diptych series, and the scene fills with life. There are now nine figures throughout the terrace, from the foreground to background. Most of the figures are women, who dominate the foreground, closest to us. One interesting element of Finney's work in this period is that whenever there is a woman in her paintings, it is her. She uses her own body and face as reference for these women. But in a psychological way, she is also painting her interior world representing it personified in these various figures. Some curious things to notice. The woman on the bottom right, who is lying down in the pool of water, her dress is torn in various places. This is a recurring symbol in Finney's self-portraits in the 1930s. She would often paint her representation wearing torn fabrics. Take, for example, her self-portrait from the same year, 1938, titled Self-Portrait with Scorpion. You can notice her shoulder and wrist have tears in her blouse. This leads me to believe these women are Fini, different aspects of her psyche. She once told the author, Nina Winter, as soon as I began painting what was in my head, people around me were shocked, Unquote. There are at least two male figures in the painting to take note of as well. On the far left, there sits a young man with dark brown skin, with his right arm, leg, and head wrapped in bandages. Then there is a nude man in the background, who is sitting in a chair positioned in the only shadow on the terrace itself. He is being eaten or pecked to death by chickens. It's unclear if he is a willing or unwilling participant, or if he is asleep. No one in the scene seems to be concerned. It's interesting to note that the symbol of a sleeping man is one which will become synonymous with Feeney's work during the 1940s. She'll continue to revisit it. Also note that the tallest woman, who is wearing a blue dress, appears to be directing our attention to the man being tortured or eaten in the back, with her outstretched fingers. They almost make visual contact with his foot. 
Is there some correlation between the man being eaten by chickens in the background and the young man recovering from his wounds in the pool? Is Fini making some commentary on manhood, on civilization, that the healing of the masculine can only happen in the life-giving waters of femininity? Finney uses water as a powerful symbol in her later artwork as well. She claims to associate water with mystery, the unconscious, and healing. Water as a life-giving force. It's curious to note that she was an avid swimmer all her life, and when she was spending time on the island of Corsica, living at the abandoned monastery, she would take long swims in the ocean. It was one of her favorite hobbies. In this second painting of the series, you also notice the destruction of the arches and masonry work on the high walls of the architecture. This may be a reflection of the preoccupation in people's minds with an impending war at the time. This was a year prior to World War II. Or perhaps one could even go the route of saying it was a precognition of the unimaginable destruction which the cities Fini called home would soon face. One final symbol to consider. The figure on the right, who seems to be emerging from a lioness's pelt, it isn't clear if this figure is a male or female. But what is clear is that Fini will soon adopt the symbol of a lioness for herself. At the time of this painting's completion, 1938, she has not yet started to use her most enduring symbol in her work, the Sphinx. But here's a first initial seed of that idea, a person fusing with a lioness. By 1940, she will no longer be the eccentric artist with the torn fabrics. She will be reborn as a sphinx. Overall, the symbolism in this series from one day to another, it reminds me of the tradition of alchemical woodcuts with their bizarre dream logic and frequent animal-human fusions. And we should finish our appreciation of this diptych by appreciating the masterful work Finney has put into the architecture of both paintings. Looking back at painting one, notice the curved alcove in the center, and the way Finney has painted a subtle light reflection within the shadow on the left side of that inner cylinder. It makes it incredibly convincing. And also notice the subtle reflections occurring on the floor, directly below that recessed alcove, but also across the entire center line even including the floor that is within shadow on the far left. I believe these two paintings are the culmination and the end of Finney's Surrealist period. And this indication of the lioness signals what is to come. In an interview with Peter Webb, Finney said this, It was very encouraging for me to meet other artists, and they seemed impressed that I was intelligent, well-read, and talented, but I disliked the deference with which everyone treated Breton. I hated his anti-homosexual attitudes, and also his misogyny. It seemed that women were expected to keep quiet in cafe discussions, yet I felt that I was just as good as the men. Breton seemed to me to expect devotion, like a pope, and wanted me to become a sheep in his gang. I enjoyed all the attention I received, but I refused to join the group. I never saw the point of being part of one group, and I disliked Breton's habit of holding tribunals excommunicating wayward surrealists like Dali and Giacometti, publishing lists of books one shouldn't read. I've never been very interested in ideologies, and I refused the label surrealist. It seemed that everything strange was called surrealist in the 30s. I saw more differences than similarities between myself and the surrealists. I was never a surrealist. 
I preferred to walk alone. We are now at the halfway point of the episode. It's time for a brief intermission. It's at this time that I'd like to ask a small favor of you. Please head over to the Spotify page for Creative Codex and give us a healthy star rating. This show is an entirely self-funded and self-produced passion project. So we don't have the million-dollar budget of some of these boring podcast networks. Any help you can give us to boost Creative Codex by rating the show and sharing it with people, it goes a long way. You can find our Spotify page simply by going to Spotify on your phone app and typing in Creative Codex in the search bar. You'll see the star rating come up on the show page. If you're enjoying the show and would like to buy me a coffee, or 10, now you can do so easily on Venmo. Just open up the search bar and type at Creative Codex, one word, and it should show up under businesses. The show basically runs on Arabica beans. Anytime I sit down to record or write the next episode, I am joined by a cup of coffee. But any donations also go toward the research for each episode. For example, for this episode, I had to purchase the only currently available English biography of Leonor Finney, titled Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney by Peter Webb. It's a massive book with full-color prints of her paintings. And of course, it's out of print, so I bit the bullet and paid $250 for it. The only reason I was able to do so was from the support of listener donations and my Patreon supporters. So thank you for that. At this point of the episode, in most podcasts, you'd hear some random advertisement about vegan dog food, overpriced headphones, or edible underwear, but not on Creative Codex. Instead, I'm going to play you a preview of my Kurt Cobain series, which is only available to my Patreon supporters. You can find that by heading over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. That's M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. Here is a preview of the limited release series episode titled Kurt Cobain, I'm Not Like Them, Part 1. <laughs> and finally, the last thing you'll hear is you pass into oblivion live from New York. It's Saturday night! On the evening of January 11th, 1992, millions of people were watching Saturday Night Live. It was largely a run-of-the-mill episode, a mixture of political humor about then-President George H.W. Bush vomiting at a banquet, and zany sketch comedy bits with SNL's Golden Era cast members, Chris Farley, Phil Hartman, Julia Sweeney, Chris Rock, and many others. Okay, Eddie, now you're scaring the people. Uh. <laughs> SNL's tradition of having a featured musical guest for each episode was well established at this point and served as a kind of palate cleanser in the middle of each show. The last episode had featured the soothing tones of James Taylor. And before that, they had the rap novelty act of MC Hammer. You can't touch this! Come on, come on! You can't touch this! So, most of the audience had no idea what they were in for when halfway through tonight's program, a new musical guest exploded out of their TV set. Ladies and gentlemen, Nirvana. 
sonic wall of distorted guitars and pounding drums, violently played by three guys dressed in thrift store threads. This was no James Taylor. This was Nirvana. And their song, Smells Like Teen Spirit, had just unseated Michael Jackson from the number one spot on the Billboard charts. Here was a new band that had seemingly burst into public consciousness overnight with their recent new album, Nevermind, a powerhouse grunge rock opus that by its sales alone is still considered one of the best-selling albums of all time. The image that would embed itself into our collective imagination is that of the lead singer and guitarist Kurt Cobain, with his messy red hair covered face, hair he had just dyed the night before using Kool-Aid. The assault of punk rock aggression paired with Kurt's melodic screeching would not soon be forgotten by viewers. And Nirvana made sure of it. To end their second song, they trashed the stage, smashing their instruments as they seared with feedback. Kurt spearing every amplifier in reach with the end of his guitar neck, while Chris Novoselic and Dave Grohl smashed the floor with their instruments and then threw them at each other. This was a spectacle. This was a celebration. Grunge rock had arrived, and Nirvana were its chosen kings. What few people knew, and what no one ever heard about, was what happened after that once-in-a-lifetime performance. At the peak of their greatest success, it all almost came crashing down. That was a preview of the limited release series, which are exclusive episodes of Creative Codex I've created which are only available for Patreon supporters. The Kurt Cobain series currently has two full-length episodes, both over an hour each and I'm currently working on the third one. If you'd like to check those out and become a supporter, head over to patreon.com forward slash mjdorian. And I thank you in advance for your support. Now, without further ado, back to Leonor Finney, Mirrors of the Dark Sublime. Chapter 3. Sublimation of the Self. Leonor Finney, claims she never saw her own paintings as surrealism. But when taking stock of her work in the 30s, it's clear that she was very much influenced by the spirit of the movement. It was in vogue and in demand by collectors and commercial projects. So this may have been both a conscious and unconscious influence on her art. 
We can't deny that it was helpful to her career to be included in dozens of group exhibitions labeled as surrealist art. It was the most popular art style of the 1930s. But in her mid-career work, in the 1940s, we see something else, something even more brilliant being formed out of Finney's inner cauldron. And by this point, she is right. She is no longer fitting under the label of surrealism, something which we haven't seen before, something truly Finneyan. Let's look at two artworks from her mid-career period to get a better appreciation for what makes Leonor Finney truly brilliant. First, let's examine her 1946 painting titled Chthonian Deity, Watching Over the Sleep of a Young Man. You can view this work at the companion gallery I've created for this episode. Just head over to mjdorian.com forward slash Finney, or click the link in the episode details. In this painting, Chthonian Deity Watching Over the Sleep of a Young Man, you can see a handsome man in the foreground, lying gracefully in deep sleep, his body exposed, and a glow to his olive skin. He is fully nude except for a pink blanket, barely covering his genitals. His left hand is the only point of tension in his body, as it seems to clutch the blanket. His body is slender and smooth, as if clean-shaven. Five o'clock shadow on his jaw indicates that he is a young man and not an adolescent. Slight tufts of armpit hair and pubic hair draw the eye across his form. Laying next to him is a black sphinx, half-woman, half-lioness. Her dark hair is ornamented with gold jewelry and an immense black feather stretches from the top of her hair to the left across the length of the canvas. Her large breasts appear to hover a few inches from the man's face. She gazes down at his peacefully slumbering expression. It's unclear what her intentions are. It is unclear if he knows she is there. The leaves and the scraps of wood strewn about the ground indicate he fell asleep in the wilderness and that this wild is not his, but the domain of the Sphinx. One could imagine that he is symbolically asleep to the Sphinx's world, unaware of her existence, but awake in his own. This point is further amplified by the stark contrast of his skin tone to the colors on the ground and the environment around him, an environment which the Black Sphinx seems to perfectly belong. This is one of the rare depictions in Western art of the dominant female and the submissive male, a type of role reversal which is only ever depicted in a violent manner, such as the paintings of Judith and Holofernes, or Salome with the head of John the Baptist. But here it is presented naturally, and without a subversive element. This dominant female and submissive male scenario is a common theme in Finney's paintings. Knowing the experiences she had in her formative years, paired with the loving and encouraging maternal household in which she was allowed to blossom, this theme in her work makes sense. As Peter Webb states in his biography of Finney, she creates an erotic dream world in which women are in control. Throughout the 1940s, Finney no longer depicts herself as a human in the form of a woman with ripped fabrics. She is now consistently in her true form, a sphinx. This depiction stays consistent throughout dozens of her artworks. The transformation seems to begin in the 1938 diptych, From One Day to Another, which we looked at. Then an intuition of this transformation is shown in Self-Portrait with Chimera of 1939, where a sphinx with a cat's head and a naked female torso is resting at Leonore's feet. 
but it more firmly arrives in the 1941 painting, The Shepherdess of the Sphinxes, and the arrestingly beautiful painting Sphinx Amalburga of 1942. This is one of my favorites. This role reversal empowers her. She is the Sphinx in her domain, in which man is a vulnerable traveler. And in a true instance where life imitates art, we can see it embodied in her personal relationships too. It's known that throughout her life, Fini often preferred the company of two men rather than one. For most of her life, she shared her most personal affections with multiple men at once, rather than a singular marriage or monogamous relationship. She saw society's limits on being as arbitrary and preferred her sexuality to be more fluid. In the book, Interview with the Muse, she tells this to the author Nina Winter. Marriage never appealed to me. I saw too many examples of what a catastrophe it could be. I have never lived with just one person. Since I was 18, I have preferred to be in a sort of community, a big house with my atelier and animals, cats, and friends, and with one man who was rather a lover and another who was rather a friend. And it has always worked. I have friends who are like brothers and sisters and more." Unquote. Let's shift our focus to another Fini painting from this time period, The Ends of the Earth, painted in 1948. In viewing The Ends of the Earth for the first time, there is this unmistakable feeling that you have happened upon something outside your comprehension, that you are trespassing for a moment in a realm that is not your own. This effect seems to be caused by the striking impression of eyes peering back at you, as if the canvas is alive and you are the victim of its startled gaze. But as you spend more time peering back at it and looking into Fini's own face, the tension of your reaction subsides. You are not a threat and she is not startled. And for the time being, it doesn't appear like she is a threat either. Whatever your next move will be, you know that the 10 eyes staring back at you are watching carefully. The Ends of the Earth depicts a startling scene. A pale naked woman with a silvery wave of hair dominates the center of the painting. She is submerged in a black mass of primordial water, which reaches up to the center of her breasts, stopping just past her nipples. Her eyes meet yours with a curiously impassive expression, just a natural alertness. She seems at home in her surroundings. An environment which consists of an animal skull, a large raven skull, and a crow skull, all floating, half-submerged in the black water around her. Paradoxically, each of the skulls has a singular eye, which seems alive and alert. They all gaze at you, and the effect is amplified by their reflections in the water below. Five eyes become ten, and this no doubt lends this unmistakable feeling to the painting of being watched. In the distant landscape behind them, we can see barren hills illuminated by a dramatic red sky. Is this hell? Is this a post-apocalyptic world? Is this the realm of the Sphinx? In the foreground, two large dried leaves float on the surface of the water, one brown and one black. Near them, to the left, a single branch extends upward, as if trying to absorb whatever light it can from this unforgiving environment, yet its leaves hang low. It's also interesting to note the spherical shape of her breasts, which again echo the spherical eyes in every plane of the painting. In a letter to the author, Xavier Gauthier, Fini wrote, 
I know that I am related to the idea of Lilith, the anti-Eve, and that my universe is that of the spirit. The sentiment feels appropriate when viewing the ends of the earth. Lilith, a primordial goddess of the dark feminine. She exists in pre-Christian spiritual traditions, including mystic Judaism and Sumerian folklore. She is known as the goddess of the night creatures, the owls and the ravens. In the mystical Jewish tradition of Kabbalah, it is said that Lilith is the wife of Samael, both of whom formed at the beginning of creation as the dark divine emanations under the throne of glory and who rule over the realm of demons. Finney commented on this painting to Peter Webb, saying, It's me, just not me. It's the essence of the feminine. She is woman, symbol of beauty and deep knowledge. She emerges from the water, the essential element of life, the primeval material, because she knows how to survive the cataclysm. The men around her are dead. They are too limited in understanding, too brutal to survive. Unquote. The appearance of the Sphinx in her work, which dominates her paintings in the 1940s, is a symbol of her inner self. It signals the beginnings of a new terrain which the rest of her life's work will inhabit. It's a terrain I call the Dark Sublime. From this period onward, each one of her paintings is a mirror, reflecting the viewer a world that only Leonor Finney inhabits, a world which only she is allowed to navigate. The rest of us are only permitted these reflections of that world, which we glimpse on her canvases. These are the mirrors of the dark sublime. But just as a mirror reflects to us what is happening in this other landscape, so too we are reflected back into it, where Finney's creatures with their uncanny eyes judge us, measure us, and invite us in. Her inner world is the terrain. Her canvases are mirrors of the dark sublime. We do not belong in that landscape. It is her own terrain to travel, but she gives us glimpses for a time. It is a landscape with its own internal logic, which we do not have the key to understand. The answer to the Sphinx's riddle remains a mystery. On the next Creative Codex, received an invitation to Leonor Finney's Dark Masquerade. The place, an abandoned monastery in Corsica, an island off the coast of Italy. You will have to take a rowboat to get there. The party begins at sundown, and you need only bring two things, a gift and a costume. The more extravagant, the better. We hope to see you there. Bon voyage. Thank you for listening to part one of my Leonor Finney series. On the next episode, I have a few surprises in store, including some interview segments with noteworthy people who have knowledge of Finney's life and work, and of the art industry. It may help us to get to the bottom of this mystery that surrounds her, both in her work and her career. Again, her absence from 20th century art history continues to boggle my mind. Let's review. Her career spans 67 years. She collaborated with the most noteworthy figures of her day, from the Balanchine Ballet to Federico Fellini to haute couture designers like Schiaparelli. She was friends with countless photographers like Henri Cartier-Bresson and writers like Paul Elouard. 
Her work was featured in over 350 gallery exhibitions during her lifetime. Her art has inspired numerous pop icons like Bjork and Madonna, and Fini completed over 1,100 oil paintings. Yet when I ask artists or friends who work in art museums, no one has heard of her. Why? On this episode, we tried to first get a sense for her history, her aesthetic, and her personality. On the next episode, we will explore more of her art and anecdotes about her life which you just need to hear, such as when she told off Salvador Dali. But we will also shift our focus to answering this riddle. Why is Fini not as recognized as Dali, Frida Kahlo, Max Ernst, or her other contemporaries? If you are enjoying this series so far, please share it with someone. Share it on social media or anything you can do that will help to tell Finney's story. Right now, there are only a few paragraphs about Leonor Finney on her Wikipedia page. And aside from this episode, no other podcasts have covered her life. Add to that, there is only one English biography about her. And of course, it's out of print. It is called Sphinx, The Life and Art of Leonor Finney by Peter Webb. It's a fantastic book, but ridiculously pricey. It's so rare that after I ordered my copy, the very next day, I saw the price jump up $100, because there was only three copies of this thing available. For English speakers, it is basically the only means of learning about Finney. I had to shell out $250 for a used copy, and the only reason I was able to do so was from the support of listeners like you, both on Patreon and through individual donations on Venmo. So that is a big thank you to everyone who supports this show now and has supported in the past. It's really what makes this possible. I would also like to thank my favorite violinist, Emily Simone. She played some of the live violin you hear throughout the episode, specifically in the beginning and ending. You'll be hearing more of her next time as well. And again, the main reason I'm able to hire such a brilliant musician for these episodes is because of listener support. So thank you for that. Go follow Emily's work through her website, www.emilysimone.com. That's S-I-M-O-N-E. And on Instagram, at Emily Simone Music. E-M-I-L-Y-S-I-M-O-N-E Music. A link to those is also in the episode description. If you'd like to listen to my Kurt Cobain series, it's only available on my Patreon. Head over to patreon.com forward slash MJ Dorian. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com forward slash M-J-D-O-R-I-A-N. There you'll also find other goodies, such as all the creativity tip minisodes and episode exclusives, such as the sermons only version of my seven sermons series. Those are available from even the $1 tiers, and the limited release series is available from the $5 and up tiers. With that said, Shoutouts are in order. Big thank you to my Karma Coma supporters. Adana, Alina, Christel82, Cryptocubris, Dan Sorrells, Dina Sun, Don Frias, Isaac Abedzade, Josh Smith, Julio Chavez, Chris with a K, Marav Seren, Misha, Michael Thompson, Miss Alex Kennedy, Mona Oman, Russ Jones, Sam McCohey, and Sarah J. It's an honor to have your support. Thank you so much, guys. Shoutouts to my Shadow Fan Plus crew, Ben Thurhofer, Blake Huggins, Brittany Miller, Cerise Walker, Daniel V, 
Figen Byram, Frank Warren, Hannah Halton, Helena DeMarzio, James S.Z., Jane Van Elk, Jeremy, Joe Russell, John Bergmans, John Harrington, Joseph Leivdahl, Karina, Lane Zong, Libby Hawker, Logan Kshivitsky, Louis Benton, Lyle Vincent, Maddie Lane, Maria, Marissa, Michael Gaffrey, Michael Pisano, Nicole L., Nicole Wessel, Nicole Chen, Rebecca Redding, Ryan Huff, Sean Matthew Howard, Steve Struhar, Tyler McKenzie, and last but not least, Zuko's World. Thank you so much, guys. I couldn't do this without you. I appreciate it. And the thank yous for the fine Shadow Fam folks are written in the episode description. The next two episodes will be part two of the Leonor Finney series and part three of the Kurt Cobain series. So stay tuned for those. Follow me on social media to hear updates on that and all things Creative Codex. You can find me on Instagram at MJDorian and Twitter also at MJDorian. The links are below. This has been Creative Codex, and I am your host, MJ Dorian. I hope to see you next time at Finney's Dark Masquerade, in the old abandoned monastery on the island of Corsica, in Italy. I'll be there with bells on. Bon voyage. <laughs>